0: Hey there, and thank you for listening to Beyond Prisons. I'm one of your hosts, Brian Nam Namsanstein, and you are listening to our companion episode to our interview with Geo Maher. If you haven't listened to that one yet, you might want to pause this and go back and listen to it first. The following is a conversation between my co-host Kim Wilson and Geo, diving deep into chapter five of his book, A World Without Police, How Strong Communities Make Cops Obsolete. The chapter is entitled Building Communities Without Police, and this conversation was originally prepared for one of Kim's courses. If this episode was helpful to you and you have the means, please consider supporting Beyond Prisons so we can make sure the show can continue. You can make a donation or subscribe at beyond-prisons.com donate, and you can also help us by rating, reviewing, and subscribing to the show wherever you listen to it. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter and check out our website for more episodes and resources at beyond-prisons.com. Thank you for listening. Here is the conversation with Kim and Geo on chapter five, Building Communities Without Police from his book, A World Without Police.
1: First of all, I wanna um, thank you so much (laughs) for agreeing to be here and, um, to share, you know, with my students, um, you know, your wisdom and to talk a little bit about, um, this, uh, this chapter specifically, but, you know, obviously you can talk about, you know, the rest of the book, but, um, I I really do want to focus. I can get that out on chapter five. Um, and, uh, yeah I wanted to let you know that you know again, I was rereading this uh this morning, you know to prepare for our conversation and um just kept nodding my head you know throughout I have you know so much of this chapter highlighted, and uh there's so many things here that really you know resonated um with me and uh that speak to not only the current moment but um the importance of grassroots, grassroots movement, uh, movements, I can, I don't know what's going on. Maybe I didn't have enough caffeine this morning, it's still early. <laughs> in um, and, uh, and the importance of community, which is, you know, the emphasis um, that, you know, or the topic of focus for this week. So I just want to, you know, open it up, welcome you here. And um You know, have you tell us a little bit about who you are, um, how you got into this work, and then, you know, give us um, a quick overview of the chapter before we dive into some more specific things.
2: Yeah, no, thank you so much. I'm super glad to be able to speak to you all, to speak to the students. Um, You know, as to who I am, I, you know, I'm a professor, I teach political theory, I teach social movements in, you know, from Latin America to the U.S um but but even before i was a professor before i had a phd i was doing organizing against the police um specifically against police brutality but against policing uh more broadly understood you know for me this started in the bay area it started particularly with the killing of oscar grant um, by bart officer johannes messerly in 2009 but it also grew out of seeing the way that those movements Um, were able to transform political possibilities through their struggle. And that was really the the lesson, you know, of that organizing for me, you know, not so much this lesson of, you know, uh, policing is terrible uh, and there's nothing we can do about it, but more that when people begin to organize and struggle, as we saw last year around, you know, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmed Arbery, um, things do enter into motion. Um, And I think that's really the the key to political... Uh, you know, mobilizations moving forward is to think of is, is the fact that this is so constantly denied. The media denies it every day. Um, political leaders deny that people taking to the streets is really what sets our history into motion. But this is, you know, this is precisely what happened. Um, it's those communities entering into struggle uh, in rebellious moments in the streets. Uh, you know often burning things down often you know engaged in militant uh, you know uh, mobilization but then at the same time uh, as this chapter in particular shows uh, using that explosive moment as the basis for building something bigger and something more durable um, in the manner of community uh, organization and the way that this book is structured overall I know you all just read the uh, the one chapter but the way it's structured overall is that you start with a diagnosis of the police of their historical function uh, broadly speaking but in the u.s. in particular Um, of course it's connected to global policing It's connected to global imperialism but in the u.s. there's this particular uh, white supremacist heritage of the police uh, who exist to protect property on the one hand wealth um, and whiteness on the other which is itself a form of property Um, and then it moves from this diagnosis to uh, uh, look at the history of reform and the kind of political organizations that uphold what I call the world of police. Um, Specifically, you know, we're talking about the fact that police reform has never accomplished anything. Um, And that the the key imperative is to confront those who are pushing expanded police power, expanded impunity, namely uh, lobbying organizations and fraternal orders of police, the so-called police unions. But then the book moves toward this question of alternatives um, and so the question is not only on the one hand we're struggling against something, against the world of police, against their organizations, against police power, um, but that the fundamental uh, insight of abolitionist movements is that this struggle against is also a struggle for that mm-hmm. you have to be building something different um, if you want the police to go away we live in a world that demands the police because we built a world around the police right if we lived in a world that didn't, wasn't defined by economic inequality by racial inequality by gendered inequality then the police would be
0: absolutely irrelevant mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah there's um there's a quote that you included uh it's on um Page 128, uh, where you say uh, you're quoting Salar Mahan, uh, Mahandesi, uh, and he says, um, creation and destruction go hand in hand, right? And that's really you know, the heart of what we're talking about here, Um, because a lot of people see, you know, it's like, well, you're always fighting, you're always fighting against, and it's not just a fighting, it's simultaneously having to build up, you know, all of the alternatives, all of the things that we need in order to not just, you know, survive, but um, to live well you know, so. Absolutely,
2: um, and I don't think there's any easy, I don't think there's any easy formula for that, right? And it's not, yeah. In in Minneapolis, there was suddenly a moment where dismantling the police department looked like it was a possible reality. It was something that could be pushed, despite the fact that community organizations had not been fully built to replace it, right? And I think Mm -hmm. we need to jump on those opportunities At the same time that, you know, uh, outside of those moments of upsurge and heightened struggle and tension, we're still building these alternatives because I think it's neither, neither the against or the for are enough. We can't just stay in our communities building alternatives without fighting against the police and we can't simply fight against the police without, you know, without building these alternatives
1: exactly exactly and um what i really appreciate about this book um and about this chapter specifically is the way that um you provide you know countless examples of how this work is you know has been done in the past and how it's currently imagined and being you know done in communities across the country so you know we're always as abolitionists when we're on panels we're speaking whatever um you know someone always asks well where is this happening you know um can you give us an example and it's like countless examples that exist all around us right so would you what are some of your favorite examples from uh from this chapter can you uh speak to a couple of them
2: certainly um and i think you're, you're absolutely right these examples are everywhere they exist on a whole spectrum and one way that i tend to understand that spectrum is You know, from the range of like appealing to the existing system to uh, all the way to things that are completely outside of that system and exist against it as an alternative to it. And I say that because it's important to, for example, uh, it's absolutely essential to divert 911 calls away from the police Mm -hmm. um, and to demand local governments do that i don't think you know you know that doesn't make you a reformist it makes you someone who's interested in getting the police out of as many situations as possible and where you know organizations like cahoots which i believe was founded in eugene oregon um, yeah. you know they when they began to function the first of all the police killings uh, in the city dropped to zero immediately um and on a tiny minuscule minuscule budget compared to the police they were able to divert thousands of cases away from policing, arrest, uh, imprisonment. Massive, a massive accomplishment. But what's even more important than that local accomplishment is that this is an example, right? Is that this becomes uh, proof of what we've all been saying, which is that the police do not keep us safer. The police are not trained to deal with mental health crises. The police should not be called upon to fix every problem in our society. And so a lot of these things may seem like uh, reformist. Uh, you know or attempts to t- to you know to just tweak the existing system, the reality is that they point fundamentally beyond it um, and mm-hmm. they create uh, new alternatives uh in by their very existence on the opposite end, I think you know it 's important to pay attention to and think about those radical moments right and the one I document in the chapter of course, is the uh, you know the the Po Park uh, you know safety collective where thousands of people got involved in a rapid response network uh, This is the kind of network that with other organizers we were trying to establish in West Philadelphia for a long time, in which, uh, you know, people are able to call upon their neighbors when they see the police, when they're stopped by the police, also those that call upon their neighbors when they have conflict with a another neighbor, another community member, um, Mm -hmm. as a way of intervening before the police become uh, involved. This is the kind of fabric that we need uh, to develop moving forward. Um, But the recent like that example is that it grew out of the sort of fires and the struggle and as a result grew incredibly quickly. Um, as I said, you know, people, we spent, you know, months if not years trying to build a rapid response network um, and, and it's incredibly difficult, slow, hard work. You have to get people signed up, you have to go door to door and you have to keep, get uh, you know, attain a certain level of density in a neighborhood to be able to have this be a functioning alternative. Uh, and yet, in Minneapolis, they formed this overnight. Right. They, they formed it in a matter of a couple of days and they had 1,100 people or something signed up. And, you know, and so these, these are the kind of alternatives that we need to pay attention to. They're incredibly exciting, right? The police, uh, in part because they themselves are vengeful, uh, you know, and petty people, um, they decided to leave downtown Minneapolis abandoned um, from their so-called safety and their so-called protection. Um, but that was in some ways a gift right? Because it allowed for the community structure to develop and strengthen itself. Now, of course, that doesn't last forever. It didn't last forever. Um, But it provides an alternative. It provides, you know, provides an experience for organizers moving forward to build upon.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Something else that um, you talked about, well, two things that you made me think of uh, while you were talking there is one, um, the 2020 really showed us that Um, things can shift very quickly. And, you know, um, while a lot of people, you know, bemoan the fact that, oh, well, you know, we haven't, uh, the revolution hasn't won, right? And it's like, that's if you're seeing the revolution in terms of, you know, specific point in time, or, you know, there's this thing that's going to this point where it's like, Everything changes that day, rather than a gradual process. And you discussed it, you know, in terms of abolition being a horizon. Um, and I think that that's a really important uh, thing to to highlight um, and underscore, so that you know we we are we're living in a moment where, you know, before twenty twenty, only abolition seemed to be, you know talked about in certain corners right certain corners of the internet <laughs> certain corners of our communities and political um groups and what have you and it was everywhere uh you know like almost it seemed like almost overnight like everybody was publishing in you know mainstream papers, it was all yeah. over, you know, um, cable news and what have you, and uh, a lot of debate and, you know, thinking around that. But um, something else that you talk about in the book, which is related to um, the points you were making around, you know, that the kind of fabric that you need to build up in the community is that, you know, sometimes when, um, and I'm and raising this As a, you know, as a point to, um, to have you respond to early on in a conversation, because it's, it's something that you hear all the time, right? Um, You know, neighborhood watch programs, you know, become um, like the police are worse. Right. And if students are following along, it's on page 135 in in the text. Um, You know, you say, despite their role in defending the rebellions, however, these and all forms of neighborhood watch run the potential risk of becoming the police or worse. And um, and I think that that's an important, uh, an important issue for us to keep in mind, because, you know, well, I'll shut up. I'll let you respond to it rather than me <laughs> telling students. What's no, I, right?
2: it, it, <laughs> I think it's an essential question because it's it's um, and, and it's, it's it's difficult because it's difficult to gauge, right? It's a really qualitative question, right? What is a community organization doing in practice um, when they're building, you know, a safer neighborhood? Are they building that safety through identification of threats and excluding and ostracizing those people from the community? Or are they building that safety on the basis of building the strength of that community? Um, and that's where you get that vague uh, sort of uh, uh, spectrum, right, where you move from community organization, um, abolitionist organization, towards being something more like the police. Um, if all you're doing is serving as what you could call an adjunct to the police. Um, if you are uh, keeping your eyes on your neighborhood and then when you see someone suspicious, you call the cops. Certainly, that's that's a problem. If you're Mm -hmm. identifying suspicious people based on their class or racial background, of course, that is a problem. This is, of course, the classic neighborhood watch phenomenon in white suburban communities (laughs) where neighborhood watch is explicitly a policing organization. right? Mm -hmm. Um, And it's based entirely on uh, discrimination on the basis of race and class. Right? Who doesn't look like they live here? Who doesn't look like they fit? Um, the alternative, of course, is—and this is something that is, is going to be more naturally, uh, you know, developed in poor communities of color—is is the uh, the model which says, listen, we're all community members, right? Uh, you know, drug users are community members.
0: Absolutely. Young people
2: are community members. They're people's children, they're people's nephews and grandchildren, um, and they're all worthy of inclusion in this community. That doesn't mean that people can run wild that doesn't mean there's no community accountability for that
1: Exactly. Um,
2: and this is an incredibly difficult thing to engage in in practice because it requires people letting go a bit of that fear which is a very real fear they have especially as homicide rates are increasing in cities like philadelphia um and um and, and but the reality is that the police don't help with that right the police don't uh lead to any Measurable increase in public safety, much less community safety, more broadly understood.
1: Yeah, something else that um, that you raised, and thank you for for sharing that. Um, something else that you raised uh, in in the chapter uh, when you were talking about the MPD one hundred and fifty um, is the you know the amount of money uh, that gets you know allocated you know uh, to the police, but also you know. The fact that um, we need money, and again, I'm, I'm borrowing from, you know, Ruth uh, Wilson Gilmore's, you know, um, she said a bunch of times, you know, no abolitionist is interested in saving money, right? And <laughs> we need to, you know, rethink how, like, if we're trying to save money, we're really not paying attention to, you know, the, the core problem that are happening in communities that are going to require lots and lots and lots of money. And that scares people. Like it, it's, you can't be fiscally conservative and be an abolitionist. Like that just, yeah. those things don't cohere. Um, and I'd like to hear you say a little bit more about that, if
2: you will. Yeah, no, I think it's absolutely true. Um, I think, I mean, not that it's a counterpoint, but I think it is possible and necessary to leverage fiscal you know, questions. I mean, this is what I think prison abolitionists have done pretty effectively in places like Pennsylvania, um, which is to say, listen, we live in a, 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 in a we were living in a recession. Um, people are concerned about money. Why are you building new prisons, right? Why are you getting mm-hmm. all of this money? And I think it's very easy, or it should be very easy, um, to point to the fact that billions of dollars are spent on policing, many billions mm-hmm. of dollars, um, and it doesn't keep us safer. And and you know and it is, it, you know, it is bankrupting entire cities. Um, and so I think there is a way to point to those things as a way of driving home a broader abolitionist perspective, which is that imagine what we could do with not even those billions, something much smaller. You know, when mm-hmm. when you have organizations like MASK in Chicago, you know, and, and, and Lightfoot, the mayor is, pro- is claiming to move beyond traditional policing, but is still offering one one hundredth of the police budget to community organizations um, and those organizations are still doing very effective things with it you know um, the question is really what what could be done with half of that police budget and that's where i think defunding is a really interesting and and you know strategy with a lot of potential um again it, it could feel reformist you're talking about you know taking you know what our not huge amounts of money away, um, and, uh, you know, and then diverting those towards social programs. But what you're showing in the process is that people's lives get better. What you're showing in the yeah. process is that it doesn't become more dangerous. Um, you know, of course, these are arguments we're going to need to have moving forward. Again, where one of the biggest questions over the next year is going to be the very real increase in some violent crimes. Um, mm-hmm including homicide and again not everywhere but philadelphia this is absolutely undeniable it's historic um and it has absolutely nothing to do with the policing uh, being cut right it's, it's caused by other factors um and more police is not the solution this is something we're going to need to do the hard i think legwork of convincing communities um you know to have some faith in abolition and have some faith in different alternatives in part because simply hasn't worked you've got just as many police as before and the murder rate is shooting up
1: yeah yeah um can you talk a little bit about the work that um that you've been engaged in in uh in west philly uh and yeah because i think that that's um that's really interesting and i think students would benefit from hearing a little bit more about um that uh the various things that you've done, including the, you know, no cop zones and uh, establishing, you know, people's courts, et cetera. Um, Can you talk about that a little bit?
2: Yeah. And I, and I of course wish that it were more and more substantive and more sustained uh, because we're talking about small groups of people trying to organize um, over the course of some years that were very difficult, uh, you know, as well. Um, you know, we were uh, attempting to, on the one hand, break through the communities and say, listen, we don't need police. We can have a barbecue. We can have this without a police presence. Um, we can have a temporary zone in which the police are not welcome as the model for uh, future, you know, like uh, broader claims. Um, you know, as I mentioned, you know, the attempt to set up rapid response networks to respond not only to police, but also to community, uh, you know, conflict. Um, And this is something that starts on the very, very local level and must function on the local level. It wouldn't work across an entire city. It works on a radius of three or four blocks where people begin to know each other, begin to develop these relationships. Um, But then at the same time that we're doing these sort of smaller uh, organizing uh, uh, processes and experiments, um, the entire world is shifting, right? There's a wave of well, that's increasing, you know, again, beginning with Oscar Grant through, uh, you know, Trayvon Martin, of course, and the, you know, the rebellions uh, around, you know, you know, Ferguson and Baltimore. And then, you know, this escalating where, again, you know, a small group of organizers were calling constant demonstrations against, for example, the police murder of Brandon Tate Brown in Philadelphia, demanding the city release information, demanding release footage, demanding that they stop lying uh, about what happened. Um, but we went from a period where we're calling a march and, and 15 people show up to a period in which we're calling a march and 2,000 people show up. Um, mm-hmm. and that was something that is, um beyond the control, uh, you know, necessarily of small group, in the city. And it's that kind of momentum that, you know, both necessitates the existence of these the organizers to play a key role in those rebellions, Um, but it's also something that we take advantage of and push, you know, right to the, the to the breaking point.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And uh, thank you for saying that, too, because I think that, you know, oftentimes um, folks who are new to organizing imagine like uh, really big kind of events, you know, or big actions uh, taking place. And to the detriment uh, of the fact that, you know, people are doing this on a very localized level right? So, you know, it's like, like you said, three or four blocks, you know, it's like not much beyond that and really trying to, you know, connect with your neighbors and get to know them and things like that. Like, it's really hard to have accountability when you don't know other people, right? When you don't know the people around you um, and they don't feel like they're a part of, you know, what's happening. Uh, So that that legwork, I think that you're describing is also something that you know, um, oftentimes is obscured in the, in the broader conversation around organizing. Like we tend to think of, oh, well, this thing is just happening. And there's people who are organizers who created, you know, these, uh, or helped spark these, uh, you know, major protests and things like that. And really overlooking the fact that there are people who are organizing in their communities every single day, whether they're working with, you know, um, Victims of sexual violence, or you know, uh, working with sex workers, or um, you know, children, uh, and what have you. Like, there's organizing work that is happening all of the time that isn't always showing up on social media. You know, <laughs> so yeah, no, <laughs> um, absolutely. And the history
2: is
1: a history and the struggle for. Oh, I lost you. Can you, on that. can you repeat that again?
2: And uh, cut the, it out can you hear me?
1: Uh, that's better.
2: Yeah, I was just gonna say that the history of story, struggle despair. Uh we know that struggles are effective when the streets connected with the leadership, right? When the leadership doesn't forget that this organizing needs to happen on a daily basis. Um and, and yet you have moments where you know the mass The leadership becomes attached and they go around giving, you know, giving speeches, but there's nothing going on on the ground. Right. And Mm -hmm. this is, you know, this is, this is something that. uh,
1: um, Hey, you're breaking up really badly. Are you able to move a little bit? Um,
2: Can you hear me right now? That's better
1: yeah thank you yeah no
2: sorry it must be going in and out i was just saying you know we need this connection you know it needs to be constant the only change happens when those movements are connected
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um can you uh and there's so many things in this chapter that you know and you quote all these people that i know um <laughs> which was also really kind of cool i'm like oh andrew um, friends with Andrew and, you know, um, and Garrett and these other folks. So that was also really, um, really cool to to kind of see. That's a sidebar, folks, uh, just <laughs> so you know. But um, you talk about the, the Camden model, and there was so much talk uh, about the Camden model last year. So I'd like you to um, briefly tell us what the Camden model is and why this is not the thing that we should be doing. <laughs>
2: Yeah, absolutely. Can you hear me all right?
1: I can hear you perfectly.
2: Great. Um, yeah. So, I mean, as soon as police abolition really hit the mainstream, uh, you know, as soon as people were uh, putting this model into mainstream debate, uh, you know, the the system reacted and the system freaked out. And so suddenly you had police chiefs talking about reform. Suddenly you had Obama and others talking about this so-called Camden model. Um, and you know, even some people like I saw headlines that got me excited because it says, "Oh no, Camden abolished the police." The reality is that Camden dismantled the city police and replaced them with county police um, mm-hmm. and this process has actually been a process of building a more uh, repressive uh a more surveilled city of camden um It's been a process oh, of building a wider police force um, and a police force that you know has total control over an entire uh community. So this, you know, what, you've got this danger of an incredibly false model being presented as not only reform, but even as almost abolition, um, mm-hmm. and 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 it's and it's a, a total uh, Trojan horse when it comes to these questions. Um, and so the the Camden model is no model whatsoever. It's a model for the total surveillance and control of a poor black community right across the bridge from uh, from Philadelphia, um, and it's not something that we should look for as a model. Um, the other really important piece is that. We were talking about the fiscal question, right, about the degree to which okay. we can leverage people's concerns over expanding budgets and say, well, uh, you, know, this, you know, this is very expensive. Pris- prisons are very expensive. Policing is very expensive. Um, but the Camden model uh, shows the limits of that as well, because uh, not only is this a mass surveillance model, um, but it's also a model that's built on in, some, in a kind of perverse way the you know, previous abolitionist victories. Mm-hmm. right, because the, the Camden model is built on the fact that people are being released from prison. It's built mm-hmm. on the fact that people are being decarcerated, right, removed from prison. Um, but the but what's happening is that those people are not free. They are under constant surveillance. Um, exactly. and, and this is uh, what, you know, people like Brendan McQuaid have called the mass supervision model. Um, mm-hmm. And the worry is that this is what's, you know, is that in pushing for uh, you know prison abolition for example um that were you know our victories are being turned into defeats as what's replacing those prisons is something much much cheaper right something mm-hmm. much more neoliberal uh in which we don't uh the state doesn't need to pay for expensive prisons It can just put people you know under you know uh mass supervision with ankle bracelets uh and you know and you know and they are not free um but it doesn't cost the city or the state almost anything so yeah. these, uh, these are the concerns raised by that and and one of the arguments I try to make in the book is that on the one hand abolition needs to have concrete demands it mm-hmm. needs to put forward specific demands but at the same time we need to be very careful about the fact that these demands will always be turned against us um, precisely because of because they're partial right then um, we need to be be careful with that the example that I gave was from uh, you know Andrew Dilt making this argument about how in California abolishing the death penalty uh, and it's a really clear example because the arguments for abolishing the death penalty ended up being arguments for more mass incarceration. Uh, absolutely. And, it, and,
0: yeah. and that
2: was claimed, it, it was a strategy, but it was a strategy that was absolutely doomed from the beginning uh, and should mm-hmm. not have been undertaken to say, you know, we should not be spending all this money on, uh, you know, on capital punishments on the death penalty. Um, we need to be focused on the real criminals, right. Um, mm-hmm. And we need to keep them in uh Prison forever, right? We need to, you know, you know, subject them to death by incarceration, um, and you know, so these are ways in which, if we take a narrow, if we take too narrow a view, if our demands are too uh, compatible with the neoliberal status quo, they're going to become defeats very quickly.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, oh my goodness! Uh, so you said a lot of things there that I want to um, circle back to, um, in terms of you know, uh, the Camden model and the way that, you know, surveillance and control really operate um, in that model. And as you pointed out already, that, you know, it's, it's really, it's, it's a fallacy to think that Camden abolished the police um, when they, in fact, did not, as you very well pointed out. But um, you know, we we did a whole um, episode on uh, on a podcast on incarceration, and um, one of the things that you know we we talked about was uh, the ways that you know the way that they're saving money on this is that they're making the people who are subject to the monitoring and surveillance pay for these ankle monitors, right, themselves. So, and if they can't afford to pay for them, then, you know, that burden falls on your families because if you don't pay, you end up back in prison. You have to, you have to pay for the monitoring, Mm -hmm. right? And, And again, like we're shifting the costs onto someone else and we're creating, uh, you know, um, I think the the line in the book was, um, you know, this open air prison, right, where everyone's home becomes a prison and everybody who is being monitored, but not just the people who are being monitored. It's also the people in the homes where they live who are subject to surveillance as well, because the state, you know, sets out the parameters for, you know, what kinds of activities people can engage in. I mean, I've um, yep. I've I just uh, last year, someone had their uh, visitations cut off, like they couldn't visit the prisons because they did a video visit and someone's, you know, uncle, um, <laughs> it's always the uncle walking behind them with a bottle of liquor. You know, the person on the video visit oh, wow drinking, um, but they cut them off because they said, well, you can't have alcohol, you know, and this is, like, a bad influence. Like, the level of surveillance and the kind of ridiculousness that, you know, people have to live under is unrealistic, like, absolutely unrealistic. And
2: And I think that points toward a bigger question, which is that, of course, we're opposed to this mass supervision model. Of course, we're opposed to incarceration. But Camden was an open-air prison before that, you know, because precisely because this is the, you know, the conveyor belt between poor communities and prisons is not because these are opposites, right. It's because they're very much the same, right. Because yeah. they're underfunded communities because they are where people are trapped and forced to live in poverty and with very few opportunities with very few, you know, social, you know, structures. Um, and so it, I think it's important. And this is really, again, this is the, the sort of strange 3d glasses that abolitionists need to wear, where you're kind of looking at the, on the one hand, at the small, at the concrete, at the local, um, but always trying to understand that that's bound to a structural question. Um, at the same time, you, you, can't, you can't fight the structural question directly. You need to fight it through mass struggle. You need to fight it through changes, you know, through uh, not, you know, not so-called reformist reforms, right, but reforms that point toward a different kind of, uh, of world.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah and I think i mean uh I've taught in uh in Camden and uh even before then you know the Camden is really um undergoing major shifts uh currently like you can look across the you know across the river and you can see all of the condos and things being built you know <laughs> right on the water um right around the the aquarium in that area, so you know and uh they're uh, couple of universities that have, you know, really uh, set up, you know, set up camp um, right there in South Jersey and are transforming those neighborhoods, but not transforming in the way yeah. that think, oh, this is a good thing, transforming in the same way that, you know, um, places like Penn and Drexel transform communities in West Philadelphia.
2: Um, and, absolutely. And, this was part, and this was part of the plan, right? Uh, you know, absolutely. again, it's McQuaid argues there was a good reason to think that Chris Christie helped to orchestrate this policing crisis and that the restructuring of the police is part of the restructuring of the city where all these, you know, this land, these contracts are being handed over to, to cronies, right, being handed over to influential donors um, to do this, engage in this so-called redevelopment.
1: Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that development and these new things, when you see a Whole Foods popping up in Camden, that Whole Foods isn't for the Black people that live in that community, right? That's a signal that something else is happening and that, you know, it's like it's coming to your block really soon, that you're going to be seeing a lot more police presence, a lot more harassment, a lot more trying to push people out and eventually pushing those people out because they want those properties. Like Camden is... um, I, I, we can go on and on about Camden, and uh, we don't have to because there's there's other things that I want to talk about before I let you go. But um, yeah, um, let's see. I wanted to move on uh, here, and uh, let's see. There's a passage, and I want to read it. Um, it's on page one fifty one, and you say abolition isn't reform; it isn't social policy lobbying, progressive. Th- think tanks or progressive legislation to cushion the blows of a violent status quo. Abolition isn't mandatory diversity training, new university hiring lines, or harm reduction, no matter how necessary and welcome these may be. It's a horizon for the total rebuilding of society from the bottom up, a society with no police or prisons because there's nothing that needs policing and no one who needs to be in prison. Abolition means dismantling all systems of inequality, oppression, and institutional inhumanity at the same time that we build new, more emancipatory alternatives that put power directly in the hands of poor communities. Thank you so much for saying that. Like, seriously, I have that whole passage highlighted, Um, you know, and and... <laughs> And bracketed, no, really, because it's like, you know, in, in one paragraph, it's, I swear, like a thousand different Twitter fights that, you know, we've all engaged in with people arguing about these different things and saying all we need to do is diversity training. And it's like, mm-hmm. oh my God. I,
2: yeah. I just at, to the it to me, a- at the same time to me that, that seems like an incomplete passage, right? Because then the next question is, well, how do you fight all these things, right? Exactly. And, you know, and one of the, the main arguments of the book, I think, is that um, ironically, it's because these systems are so big, because they're so intertwined, that smaller changes can have an impact, right? And so mm-hmm. it, it, it throws us back onto that terrain. But again, we're not against small changes. We're not against reforms that point in an abolitionist direction. Um, on mm-hmm. the one hand, I would be against pointing to those and saying, well, that's abolition or like, look, we have accomplished abolition or diversity is abolition or something like that. Um, But at the same time, I think the point is, and this is what we've seen over the past year and of course, over the past several years is the fact that, um, there's something going on there where if you put your finger on police violence and white supremacy in policing, um, it really unleashes a great deal of power. Mm-hmm. And it unleashes power from a frightened system, from the, the, the guardians of that system who react in, in increasingly fascist ways. But it also releases power from the grassroots level where people realize that they have sort of touched the third rail of American politics, that that's, you know, that that's the source. Um, you know, policing, in the way I like to put it, is that policing is so central to U.S. history, to the U.S. power structure, that even small change, changes in policing unleash Uh, these sort of broader chain reactions.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, uh, I've talked about this uh, with Brian on the podcast before, and we also had Dylan Rodriguez on, you know, to talk about policing as opposed to the police. But um, for the benefit of my students, do you mind uh, talking about that a little bit? Uh, So that, you know, because we're using those terms and I think people might hear them as, you know, interchangeable and they're not.
2: I think there, are, I mean, I think there are probably disagreements about how to use these terms, you know, what precisely they mean. Um, and, you know, and, you know, uh, often what's happening is we're just making a decision and we're deciding to use them in useful ways. Um, so for me, what I find to be useful is, uh, on the one hand, recognizing that policing or I'm <laughs> recognizing, I want to be precise because you've demanded it, recognizing yeah. that the police uh, is a discrete concrete institution, right there. It involved uniforms It involved the state sanctioned use of force and violence, um, and, you know, and it bears a certain relationship to the power structure for me, policing is a much broader thing in the sense that. As I argue in the book, uh, you know, uh, far more people, you know, uh, Trevor Martin was not killed by the police, right. But he was being policed. Ahmad Arbery was being policed. By the lynch mob that killed him in Georgia, um, you know, and so that broader structure is incredibly essential to understanding U.S. history and also the broader functioning of the police. And it points toward broader challenges for abolition. You know, so as Dorothy Roberts argues, you know, so many social welfare services are police institutions. Right? Um, they don't wear the same uniforms. They don't always carry weapons. But you know, child protective mm-hmm. services often functions as a white supremacist institution that destroys families, um, oversees, surveils them, uh, and, and, and does the work of the police. This is the broader function of policing. Again, it ranges all the way from other institutions outside of the police, strictly understood all the way into just the everyday function of society or what I call uh, in the book, the pig majority, the vast majority of people who, uh, do policing every day, who, you know, call the police who call nine one, one, who see someone who, you know you know carrying a bb gun in in a walmart uh in in ohio and call 911 you know
0: um
2: people who uh assist the police you know people who uh, report people to the police neighbors who report you know who gentrifiers who move into a neighborhood and decide to call the police on their because their neighbors are having a barbecue uh you know that you know would never have been you know controversial before you know these gentrifiers have moved into the neighborhood so this is broad apparatus of policing which also exceeds and transcends borders, right? It's directly connected to foreign policy, directly connected to global colonial uh, white supremacy and imperialism. You know, it's the so-called police action of the U.S. forces in Vietnam. It's global counterinsurgency. But when you really get down to it, and I spend a lot of time in the book talking about Latin America, talking about other sort of, you know, third world uh, countries engaged in struggles against policing and imperialism, but when you get down to it, they're struggling for the same thing that people in West Philadelphia are struggling for, mm-hmm. which is community control, right? Community safety, uh, community structure in which uh, neighbors take care of themselves um, mm-hmm. and, and build alternatives to policing. There, you know, things are just as stark. And I try to, part of what I try to do is say, it's really not that much different, right? Yeah. So there are these arguments that uh, abolition is risky, you know, that, that people are, people who are vulnerable are not able to abolish the police because they themselves would suffer the brunt. But the reality is that they already do. The most vulnerable in our societies are the ones who suffer the brunt of social violence, are the ones who bear the brunt of police violence. And so I try to point to examples in Venezuela, in Mexico, in South Africa, in Northern Ireland, where, you know, life couldn't get any riskier. And it's really out of the worst circumstances that people are like, you know what, we're done with this, right? We're going to do this on our own
1: absolutely absolutely and you um you end the chapter by basically saying that you know the only antidote to the police is community community and more community and i think that you know that um that right there sums it up very nicely um is there anything else you want to add
2: no i think again you know this is uh you know community community more community is both a true statement, I think, and something that always demands more of us, right? Because it's, uh, you know, one of the challenges of abolitionist work and abolitionist writing and, and, you know, all these things that you well know is to get beyond the rhetoric, right? So we know we want a free society. We know we want to abolish these institutions. Um, And yet, what does that look like, right? It's it's easy to say community, community, more community. It's very hard to build that. Um, It's very hard to envision what that would look like and to convince others um, that that's a project worth uh, undertaking. So, uh, you know, I think the the good thing is that with every turn in these cycles of struggle, right, with every escalation that we've seen, in huge levels of escalation over the past few years um, with the George Floyd struggle, that image and that picture of what community could look like is becoming clearer to more people, I think. And our task is to is to continue to push those struggles, to engage in them, to make those demands um, and and also to, uh, you know, encourage people not to forget. You know, uh, everything seemed possible a year ago, um, but the system is very, very good at then retroactively convincing us that, you know what, those are those things are not possible. Uh, The homicide rate, the the homicide rate is increasing. So that's not possible. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, we don't we don't want to upset the Republicans. So that's not possible. Um, mm-hmm. But we need to remember, I think, the urgency um, of uh, the George Floyd rebellions, but also the the possibility that they embody.
1: Absolutely. And um, I think it's also important to point out that a lot of the work and the energy that folks, um, you know, saw last year, um, that groundwork was done decades earlier, right? That people had been engaged in in that work you know for a very long time and what you saw was kind of like you know we're in the middle of a global pandemic right <laughs> and uh and still are you know and it's like 2020 just brought together all of these you know different things and it just you know it, it just exploded right sure. like people were willing to go out into the streets and you know um and risk getting covid you know in may i mean mm-hmm. at- we were all, you know, on lockdown. I mean, it's like yeah. there was, you know, oh my God. Like it, it just, it's mind boggling uh, to think back on, you know, the extent to which people were like, we are fed up. And, you know, what, um, what a lot of us wonder, you know, now as things are quote unquote returning to normal, um, it, you know, and pushing back against that idea that, you know, we don't want to go back to whatever it was before, because whatever it was before is what got us here in the first place, that what we want to do is change things. And I think that, you know, the, again, 2020, um, and other people have said this far more eloquently than I'm saying it today, you know, that 2020 really showed, um, revealed to us what is possible um, and what can happen in a very short period of time when people are, you know, catalyzed when they're energized when they want you know um when they want something to change uh, or many
2: somethings uh yeah yeah of course and there's that this kind of apocryphal quote from lenin you know that says that there are you know decades when nothing happens and then there are weeks when decades happen um and, and you know last year was one of those moments but it's also true that This is what abolitionists do, right? Uh, you know, Mm -hmm. I like to think back on the first wave of abolition, right? The abolition of slavery, It, it was, it seemed absolutely bonkers to people, the idea of abolishing slavery, you know, in the 1840s into the 1850s. And it was the radical action of slaves themselves. Of course, it was the radical action of abolitionists, black and white, um, who took radical action, who insisted on pushing this absolute fanatical faith in the destruction of slavery as an evil force in the world. Um, so that over a period of, of very few years, actually, something that was a fringe idea became a mainstream idea. And this yeah. is, I think, the legacy we have to build on. I think we've seen that already happen around the mass incarceration in a lot of ways. The mainstreaming of abolitionist narratives around mass incarceration has been incredibly effective due to the, you know, the organizing for decades now of organizations like Critical Resistance. And I think the question is, how do we propel that into the, the question of policing and allow it to take root in a similar way?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I want to say thank you so much for... Um, talking to my class, talking to me today. Um, this was incredible, and I'm looking forward uh, to having you on the podcast to talk about the whole book, um, and uh, that should be happening sometime soon. So, thank you so much,
2: Gio. No, thank you for having me, and thanks to everyone for reading the chapter.
0: Beyond Prisons is created and hosted by Kim Wilson and Brian Sonnstein. Ellis Maxwell edits our episodes, and Victoria Nam manages our website and volunteers. The music is by Jared Ware. We'd like to give a special thanks to our many volunteers who are helping us transcribe our episodes to make them more accessible, as well as our donors who provide 100% of the funding for this show. We really appreciate your support. Thanks for listening.